As we continue in our series that we've entitled Preeminent, uh, looking at how Jesus in all things is number one. He's the greatest. He's the most glorious. He's numero uno. And we need to make that a part of our uh, every decision, every plan um, that we make, and every step that we take. We need to make Jesus be the centerpiece of all that we do, including that uh, activity that we do within church, that all that we do in these services and uh, in our lives as Christians point back to Jesus so that he might receive the glory, honor, and praise. And we've been studying this book of Colossians. It's a, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. And uh, we're going to learn, as, as we have been, uh, the importance of understanding uh, the place that Christ has in our lives. I'm going to ask that you turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 23 this morning. It's going to be our biggest passage of Scripture that we study. Uh, out of this, but we're going to come back and look at this passage of Scripture again next week. This week we're going to look at the problem under the heading of weeds, uh, hindrances to spiritual vitality, and next week we'll look at the way, if you will, uh, to spiritual vitality that's found in Jesus Christ. So today we deal with the problem, next week we deal with the solution. So go ahead and stand as we read God's Word together, giving reverence to it and the public reading of it. As I look at, uh, uh, starting, we'll start in verse 9, and then we'll go through verse 23. For in Christ, the wholeness of fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ, you've also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink of which, uh, of, uh, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that comes from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence 
of the flesh. Let's pray. Father God, I ask your blessing on the reading and hearing of your word and the application of it. Pray you'd speak through me. Lord, I also think of, of those pulpits that are, being, that are being used to preach your good word uh, today. I think of Christ Community and Calvary West and, and our other three campuses of Village Bible Church here in the area that are preaching, proclaiming your word uh, this morning. I pray that you would speak through uh, those that are speaking on your behalf. Lord, fill the churches in this place, uh, in this uh, Fox Valley area with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we may partner with them, that we may lock arm in arm uh, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for your glory in your name. Now, Lord, speak to us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us for some time, you know that as we've been studying the book of Colossians, we've been seeking out uh, what it is to know of the situation that had, uh, the, had the Colossians all worked up. At this point, Epaphras, the pastor uh, of the Colossian church, has seen that the church that he has started really start to struggle, and he sought help and, and uh, wisdom from his mentor, the Apostle Paul, who's in prison. And so he goes and visits Paul in Rome, and he wants to learn how to help the church at Colossae grow and how to keep it from falling into a disrepair, if you will. And, and what we have before us is Paul's response uh, to this Colossian issue. Paul loves this church. He loves this church even though he hasn't met many of the people that are in it. And he longs for them to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, making Christ number one in their lives and all that they do. And Paul uses uh, a phrase in our passage last week that will help us understand what it means to make Christ preeminent, what it means to have a vital walk with him. He says that we are to be rooted in him uh, in verse 7. And Paul uses this phrase, I believe, because he had learned from the master teacher, Jesus, who spoke about our uh, great need to be rooted in Christ. Uh, but Jesus used it a different way. Jesus said that uh, we are branches and we will not accomplish anything of value if we're not connected, if we're not rooted to the vine. And so what Paul then articulates is, is that if we are going to do anything of good for Christ and his kingdom, it is going to involve us always seeking to be utterly connected in every way, shape, or form to that of Christ, making sure everything that we do doesn't just have Christ as maybe a heading, but that he's above all things, he's in all things, and he's through all things uh, whether they're Christian activities or our time spent in the world. Now the problem is, is we have an enemy. And the enemy wants nothing more than to come and steal you of your joy and rob you of your peace. And he does so by putting obstacles in the way. And if we use that garden analogy this morning, the devil uses weeds to accomplish this task. You see, weeds are able to steal uh, nutrients and steal the needed sunlight that plants need to grow. And what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 28, is that the devil is the one who puts these weeds into our gardens, if you will, that take away that vitality. In the text, he says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. 
The servant said of the master of the house and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? The master said, An enemy has done this. Now I know we're in the middle of a wind chill advisory enduring another Chicago uh, winter, but I want to talk about gardens this morning. And I want to talk about how you in your spiritual life are a garden. A garden that, as the scripture says in our text this morning, needs to be nourished. It needs to grow. We are told that apart from Christ, we will never bear good fruit. Well, the church is a garden as well. It is a place where growth can take place. And the question we have to ask this morning in our lives and and in our church is, is the question, are there weeds that are stealing us from the vitality that Christ has called us to have and be a part of. I want you to notice the screen for a moment. I want you to look at two pictures this morning. The first picture is a picture of a well-groomed garden. Lots of vegetation, lots of fruit being, uh, if you will, bared out in, in the harvesting of this crop. Everything has its place. Everything has its order. This is a picture of what God wants spiritually in your lives what he wants for us as a church. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us uh, to be producing a harvest of righteousness for him. But one of the ways the enemy keeps us from doing this is by planting weeds in our lives that will begin, maybe they'll start with one, but as they grow, they'll turn into this. And what will happen is, is some of you right now have allowed weeds into your lives and your life is not bearing fruit. And the reason why isn't because you're not trying. It isn't because you're not willing to do some important things that will produce it. The devil has allowed, or you've allowed the devil, if you will, to, to plant weeds into your midst that are sapping you of your joy and taking away the opportunity for real growth. Paul is speaking to a church that looks a lot like this, and flip it back for a moment, and he wants the church to be doing this. Well, how's he going to deal with that? I want you to notice this morning that in the church at Colossae, there were three weeds that were a part of the church that had infested the church and were taking it over so that the church could not reach full maturity in Christ. And I want you to notice that within our text, we get once and for all, finally, an understanding of what the Colossian heresy is. Over uh, these last couple months that we've studied this book, Paul's alluded to it uh, many different times. And we've tried not to speak too much into it because we knew it was coming where Paul would address it in a more extensive treatment. And in verses 11 through 23, we get an idea of what weeds were affecting, if you will, the spiritual vitality of the Colossian church. And if we apply it today, we'll notice that, that those same weeds are fighting our vitality as Christians as well. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you, because this will be a two-part, if you will, sermon. I want to give you a statement, kind of a thesis of where we're going. And we'll address the first part today and, and the second part next week. But this, write this down. This is important. Here's what we need to remember as we study these uh, passages before us. Spiritual vitality is not found in an empty religion, but in an extensive relationship with Christ and his church. And so we're going to learn today the first part of that, that you and I cannot find spiritual vitality in a set of things that we do built into this thing that we call religion. 
that if religion isn't connected with Jesus, it's empty. There's no value to it whatsoever. And so we need to be careful that we don't, as as it says in verse 8, not to allow people to take us captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 8 is our definition of what empty religion looks like this morning. And today, we're going to find out you can't find spiritual vitality just by doing certain things. It has to involve Christ. It has to involve his church. Now notice, Paul wants to address that this morning, and he wants us to understand that there's a difference between religion and and, and a vibrant relationship with Christ. Notice in the text, as we just kind of skim along for a moment, that there's this contrast that's being shown. First of all, the contrast is shown of the physical act of circumcision and the spiritual act of circumcision of the heart. One involved a small piece of flesh, the other involved a whole changing of our entire being. Then he goes on and he says, okay, the difference between spiritual vitality and, and uh, religion is the difference with being, being alive when you were once dead. He goes on in verse uh, 18 or verse 17, and he says that uh, spiritual, I'm sorry, uh, empty religion is filled with shadows, but a relationship is the substance, it's the real deal. And so Paul keeps going back and forth, and he keeps saying, I want you to notice, to compare and contrast what the real deal is when Christ is number one, and what the fakery or the forgery, if you will, is when you make yourself number one by pursuing these things. And so what are these weeds that we need to see this morning? Weed number one that Paul uh, speaks about is the weed of ritualism. The weed of ritualism. Notice in the text, that some of the same things that were being done in the, old, uh, the New Testament church 2,000 years ago is being done today. Notice the words of ritual that we have. Notice human traditions. Notice circumcision. Notice in verse 12, baptism. Notice in verse 18, festivals and Sabbaths. Uh, notice all of these things. Now, I want you to, to be aware that, that these rituals in and of themselves aren't bad. Uh, they can even have some great value to them. They were ways for uh, truths to be illustrated, and they are illustrated, of course, through the Scriptures. So it wasn't like these people were creating new rituals that weren't connected to the Bible. These things were all throughout the Bible. Many of these things were, were just full uh, of passages out of the Old Testament that could attest to such things. But notice what was happening in verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you. In verse 18, let no one disqualify you. You see, what was going on in the church was that people were creating these man-made ideas, and they were putting them as being important to themselves, and then they would pass judgment on others. And so they would look at your activity, they would look at your externals, and the church at Colossae had become an Olympic competition. They would look at your life, they would look, were you a part of certain rituals, were you a part of doing certain things, and they would hold up numbers to say whether you're in the faith or not. And Paul says this is not spiritual vitality as we know it. But what does this look like? I want you to notice that this form of religion, this form of religion says vitality is found uh, 
in the traditions that you keep. It's found in the traditions that you keep. Now, I want you to know our world is full of traditions. We have them in our families. We have them in our schools. We have them in our communities. And we have them in the church. And those traditions are good as long as they uh, are kept and contained in proper boundaries. Let me illustrate for a moment. Uh, Yesterday, hopefully, you celebrated, if you're a spouse, uh, the celebration of Valentine's Day. It's a tradition. Now, you can uh, ask the question whether it's right or wrong. Did Hallmark come up with it or, or, or any of that? Is it just to help the floral uh, makers of the, of the world or the chocolate makers? It's a tradition. It's a, it's a day that we dedicate in our world to celebrate the, the subject matter of love. But here is where the problem begins. So you're a married individual today. Do you take the celebration of Valentine's Day and use it as the key marker or measuring stick to your relationship with your spouse? Hopefully, if your spouse has faithfully served you in 364 days out of the year and maybe got busy or maybe didn't get around to buying you flowers or buying you a card yesterday, that you didn't say, hey, you missed it on Valentine's Day, and so we're done. It's all over. What these people were doing was saying that if you missed it on Valentine's Day, everything else was off. You had blown it. That there are certain days, there are certain moments that are so important to the Christian, if you weren't doing them, then it showed that your vitality was uh, no good with regards to your relationship with Christ. Now, a couple things I want to share about this. Number one, we need to remember what traditions are. They are activities with depth. They are activities with depth. What in the world do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that traditions aren't simply things that we do. They are things that we do that have deep and profound reasons behind why we do them. And so let me explain. We celebrate the holiday or the holy day of Christmas. On December 25th, which is tradition, okay, Jesus, we don't know when Jesus was born. Many believe it was sometime in the month of August, but Christmas music, white Christmas, wouldn't sound very good in a Chicago August, right? And so we celebrated on December 25th. And in that celebration, there are traditions that are all involved. Of course, in, in our Christmas celebration, we celebrate by singing of, of different kinds of music, we celebrate uh, by buying gifts for uh, our, our friends and our, our loved ones. We gather around uh, tables in our homes and we celebrate this holy day uh, as a day that's uh, dedicated not only to Christ but to the love of family. Uh, we do that by decorating uh, our houses. We put up green trees in our house as a way of celebration. We hang things all over our windows. All of these things are traditions. I want you to know that they are meaningful. Your family traditions aren't something that someone came up with yesterday, but they are things that have spanned the time, and the family or the individual has said, these things are important to me. They are activities with depth. What I mean by that is we don't celebrate these things just casually. We prepare for them, we look forward to them, and we make sure they're done with excellence. 
And so traditions we need to understand are, are things that are important to people. They're important. And, and, and what we need to understand is, while they're important, they can never be measuring sticks to one's spiritual well-being. That's as if saying that uh, you'll, dicta- or you'll determine one's celebration of Christmas by the way they wrap the gifts, by the kind of bow they put on the tree, by the amount of decorations that are put all around the house. And so we need to understand this morning that it's okay to have traditions. It's human to have traditions. I can't imagine living in a world or living in a family where there were no traditions. But we need to be careful that we don't put on others an idea of a tradition that maybe is not their tradition. By shoving what I do on Christmas or on my family traditions onto someone else and saying, if you don't do that, then you're not really Christian. That's what was going on within the church. And notice the things that they were using. Things like circumcision. That's not a small thing. Baptism. Things about what we eat or drink. Festivals, new moons, Sabbath. The Old Testament's filled with all of these things. But herein lies the problem. Traditions, when they get out of their boundaries, can easily distract us from the main focus. So what were those traditions of the day? I want you to notice in Colossians there were two things. Write these down. Colossians had traditions around diets and days. Diets and days. So examine the diets for a moment. The text tells us that we are not to pass judgment with regards to questions of food or or drink. That smacks of Old Testament uh, Judaism. It smacks of uh, the Israelites in the wilderness. It smacks of the dietary restrictions that are found in the Torah, of whether things were clean or unclean. Now you may ask the question, well, why would God do that? If God is the producer of all good things and food is good, why would God say to, to a group of people, I want you to know that there are things that are good or clean and things that are unclean. What God was doing through all those laws was reminding his people of a couple truths. Number one, he wanted to continually give them an object lesson, that uh, the idea of purity and impurity. He wanted them to recognize, number two, that he was the God who established the rules and regulations. And what that meant was, is just as he did in the garden, there is so much for you to eat and enjoy in this garden, Adam and Eve, but there's one tree, there's one tree you cannot eat of the fruit of. I don't want you to participate in eating from that fruit. What God was saying in that wasn't that the tree was bad. In fact, the, the, the text tells us it was pleasing to the eye. It was in the center of the garden. There was a lot of great value to it. But what God was saying when he said don't was to remind them that he's in charge, we're not. And so God had put these dietary restrictions together to show them that number one, he's, he's God, and number two, by showing them that there are things that are pure and there are things that are impure, and God determines those things when and how he wants to determine them. But here's the thing. As the New Testament opens up, we see that these dietary laws were fulfilled in Christ. 
and that the New Testament over and over again speaks to this. In fact, this was a hard issue for the the disciples and the early church to wrap their head around. Peter, a man who walked and talked with Jesus, who had seen the risen Christ, he struggled with this. And he's living his life as a New Testament Jew, not eating of the, of the great pork chops and, and the back ribs of, of a pig. And he did so because the law of Moses said he shouldn't. And when he began to start evangelizing some of the, the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 10, we are told that, that Peter is given a vision. And the vision of, is of this great white sheet that has all kinds of unclean animals and food on it. And, and a voice from heaven says, take, kill, and eat. And the Bible makes it clear that what Peter thought was unclean now, because of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, that he could consume of that. In fact, the Apostle Paul addresses this. Write this passage down, 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. 1 Corinthians 8.8 8 says that food will not commend you to God. We are no worse of it. I'm sorry, we are no worse of if we're no worse of it if we don't eat, and no better off if we do. And so we need to understand that whether we eat something or, or abstain from it, that may be good for you, that may be a conviction of yours, but in God's eyes, God's not sitting there counting, uh, if you will, uh, your calories or counting what you've eaten and saying, oh, he shouldn't have eaten that, that's, not, that's on the don't eat list. But notice, they didn't do this with just diets. They did it with the Sabbath day. And we know the Sabbath day was the day within the week that was to be kept holy, where no work was to take place. It was a day that was to be set apart for the Lord. And there were people in the Colossian day saying, hey, you can't do anything during this time. And so they would see other Colossians working on the Sabbath, and they'd say, you're a sinner for doing that. They would see them engaged in activities and they would pass judgment on them. You're missing the point. You're missing what God intended and you'll never be a follower, a good follower of Jesus Christ if you don't do it. But notice it was more than the Sabbath. Notice in verse 16 that it involved festivals, new moons. And the idea here is that these religious festivals were full, um, were, were things that were, uh, would fill the calendars of the Jewish uh, family, uh, whether it was Pentecost or, or the Tabernacles, all of these different festivals that would take place were festivals that would be used as tools to help us remember our need to pursue God. But these things had been set aside set aside because Christ was now the fulfillment. These were shadows uh, of what we now partake in in Christ. You see, these things, what Paul isn't saying, listen, just so I'm clear, what Paul isn't saying is that uh, abstaining from certain things is a sin or dedicating yourself to certain days is a sin. What he's saying is don't use these things as a litmus test to one's spirituality. So you say, well, Tim... I don't judge people based on circumcision. I don't judge people based on what they eat. I don't judge people based on, on uh, uh, what, what festival they're a part of. So, so this doesn't apply to me. Let me tell you, ritualism is alive and well in our church today. What traditions do you have? Right now, some are wondering in their heart, the problem with the church today is these young people don't dress like we used to in our Sunday's best. Right? 
And so uh, that's the problem with our church. The reason why the, the, the world is struggling with sin is because we don't get dressed up for church. And I remember with great affection putting on my Sunday suit and, and the women wearing dresses. And that was the good old days. That was the golden age of church. And what's going on now? Kids are wearing sweatpants to church. I mean, come on, right? Sinners, I get it. And we judge because they're not wearing things like we used to. How about the way we worship? I can't worship with that kind of music. It's not the music that God wants you to listen to. I want you to know that I'm not just addressing the older people in our church. I'm addressing both because a hymn gets played and the young people say, oh, that's an old song and it makes no sense to me. We can't worship to that. We need the drums. And then you who are on the other side of it say, oh, we need the old hymns, the the deep hymns, the, the wonderful hymns, the hymns that bring us closer to God. And I can't worship if I don't have that tradition in my life or that church isn't doing it if it's not doing those things. Brothers and sisters, we've got all kinds of traditions. And we determine whether someone is vital in their walk with Christ, has a vital walk with Christ based on these things. And Paul says, don't be led astray by them. Don't think for a moment that you can determine the extent of what's going on on the inside by simply looking at the outside. What he's saying is don't judge a book by its cover. Now, I want to be careful with that because there are some things that we can judge, but we need to make sure that when we judge, we judge based on the criteria of Scripture, not our man-made traditions. And some traditions are so old and so uh, tightly put together that you almost think you could find them in Scripture, and you're almost surprised when you don't. We call those things folk theology, by the way. That theology that's been laid forth from one generation to another, that it's become folklore. That you, you think that it's in there, and it's not. So the Jews were saying, you want to be a Christian? You want to be a good Christian? You're not going to be accepted unless you're circumcised. You're not going to be accepted unless you celebrate the Sabbath. You're not going to be accepted if you don't pursue and, and participate in these festivals. Well, each of these things had their place. Circumcision had its place. Sabbath rest had its place. Dietary laws had their place. But God has given us now Jesus Christ. Notice in the text, it says that each of these things were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. This week I'm going to be traveling uh, down to Dallas, and I'm going to be gone until Thursday. And I'm going to, at some point, and, and I get homesick relatively quickly, and so at some point I'll pull up a picture on my phone and, and, and remember my family. And I'll remember, man, I'll just think about what a great family I have and the joy that I have. And, and that picture will, if you will, hold me over from my absence, right? When, when we miss people, we, we pull up something that reminds us of them, a picture of some sort. But when we get home, I don't keep looking at the picture. I go and I embrace the real deal, right? Circumcision, Sabbath, and, and dietary restrictions, and, and special days are a picture but now that we have Christ, they're secondary. 
And so if you are wanting to hold to your traditions, it would be no different, and I don't mean to be funny here, that when I get home from Dallas on Thursday, that I go and I look at the picture, Amanda's standing here, but I look at the picture and I give the picture a kiss instead of her a kiss. And some of us are taking uh, the picture that represents something of our faith, we're kissing that instead of kissing the real deal. That's what tradition does to us. Number two, let's look at a second weed. The weed of mysticism. The weed of mysticism. Verses 18 through 20 addresses this issue of, of mysticism. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So mysticism. Well, what's mysticism? Well, first of all, let's recognize that the word mysticism isn't a bad word. Properly defined in the, in the dictionary, it's a word that, that literally means uh, a practice, a religious practice, that spiritual truth can be gained through cont- contemplation, prayer, and deep thinking on the word of God. That's not bad. You can gain spiritual truth from thinking through, praying through, and deeply thinking through the scriptures. But what Paul is addressing here is a mysticism that the dictionary also defines as a self-delusional and dreamy confusion of thought. And while the, uh, the New Testament Jews in Colossae were bringing their old things back from the Torah, the, the New Testament and the uh, converts from the Gentile side were taking Greek thought and philosophy and they were applying it to New Testament Christianity. And this mysticism was derived from the imagination of the Gnostics. Well, what did this religion say? It said vitality is found, spiritual vitality is found in the experiences that you have. Write that down. That this religion said that vitality, spiritual vitality was found in the experiences that you had. Now these Gnostics were great pretenders. And they were beginning to fool the Colossian people. They had built this idea that their their experience was that of humility. In verse 8 it says that they were filled with empty deceit. Later on it says in the text uh, that they insisted on asceticism. Literally they, they on humility. And they would talk about the worship of angels. And they would become puffed up. So how would they start? They would start by saying, I cannot have a relationship with God. And so they would be in their Colossian Bible study, and they'd say, I can't have a relationship with God. I'm sinful. God is holy. And so there's no way I can approach God. And so what I've now approached is I've gone to one of the angels. And I have an angel that I talk with. And I have an angel who appears to me. And the angel appears to me because God's too holy and I'm too sinful. And so this angel has the job of communicating truth to me. And and they would go on with great detail about the visions that they had with these angels. But here's the thing. Gnostics believe that you are continually climbing the ladder and you would move from one angel and you would be promoted to another angel. 
So then the conversation would, uh, would be espoused in the Colossians small group. Well, what angel are you following? Well, I'm talking with, Col- uh, with uh, angel number four. Well, uh, I've moved on to angel number seven. And I've got some great things that angel number seven is telling me, and you're not there yet. It reminds me of what I used to hear in the car with uh, my oldest son when he would hear something, and my younger son would say, well, Noah, tell me about it. And and Noah, like a good older brother, my older brother used to do this as well. It's only for 10-year-olds to know. You're not old enough. And the puffing up was that these people would say, I'm talking with an angel of higher caliber, and I wish I could tell you all that he tells me, but you're not spiritual enough to be able to hear it. And they would do this until the point that they got to the secret knowledge of God, that they had gotten so holy, so set apart in their minds that they were speaking with God himself. You see, verse 18, uh, notice in the text Uh, Let no one disqualify you. Literally, it means let nobody, in human terms, let nobody set up a VIP room in your Christianity. What I mean by that is don't let someone say to you that uh, because you've experienced some things, you get to go behind the red velvet rope line into a place that others can't. For we have one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There's nothing that separates us from that. I don't have some luxury. I don't get to go into, if you will, um, the VIP lounge, okay? Well, you got to hang out here. Christ broke that. He tore that, uh, that uh, curtain on the day of his crucifixion that now we can enter the most holy of holies because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is not some knowledge to be known only privately and some to be known for public consumption. So how do we involve ourselves with this? I know many people say they're talking with angels and stuff like that. We live in a world, friends, where experiences in the Christian life are held in high regard. How so? I can't tell you how many times we, we've had testimony night at a, at a small group and this is what will be uttered at the small group. Well, gee whiz, guys, I wish I had a more amazing testimony. I grew up in a Christian home, had a great mom and dad. They shared with me the good news of Jesus Christ at a young age. I accepted Christ, and Christ has filled me, and he's grown me. And while it's not been a perfect road, it's been a pretty unbumpy road. And, and I feel kind of dumb that my, my testimony is pretty boring in comparison to you drug users and immoral people and been to prison and, uh, and all of that. I, I don't have those experiences. Let me tell you something. Mysticism is found when you think your faith is less than theirs. When you start saying that you need something to experience more, listen to me, is it not enough that you who are blind now can see? Is it not enough for you that you were dead and now you're alive? We don't need good stories to add to it. Now, I'm not saying that those stories aren't bad. Experiences are, are good things, but we don't have to think we have a boring faith because we haven't experienced such things. Number two, have we ever wished that we live during a different time so that we might experience greater revelation. Oh, I would walk with God a whole lot closer if I was like the disciples. Saw what they saw? I'd be on fire if I saw Lazarus coming forth from the grave or, or the, you know, as a caterer to see 5,000 fed without a Fox River truck out back. Okay? 
That would really grow my faith, right? And what we do is we say, God, Jesus, you're important, but show us a little more. Give me just a little more, that, that little extra pick-me-up that, that, that allows the hair on the back of my neck to, to, to kind of be raised. See, we long for that which is ecstatic, for the extraordinary, for the miraculous. That's why a book about a little boy going to heaven and coming back to speak of it is a bestseller amongst Christians. Because we want that. We want to experience that. It, that. That experience makes us feel like we're closer to God. That mysticism, that dreamy thought says that, man, uh, that Jesus isn't just this guy that's contained in the Scripture. He's living and active as if the truth of what God's Word says isn't enough for us. We need a little kid to tell us about it. You say, well, I don't believe that stuff. Well, what about the end time speculations? I got a four and a half page email from someone who doesn't attend here, but is a Christian and knows my role in the church. Four and a half pages. I'm so happy that Jesus is coming. Well, how's Jesus coming? Well, the, the, the new president, atheistic president of Greece is the Antichrist. And he says, isn't it amazing? Isn't it awesome that we can see the, the, the words of revelation coming out in our life? Doesn't it make you have goosebumps? Let me tell you what gives me goosebumps. I was dead, blind, and held captive by the enemy, and Jesus Christ has made me alive by the blood of the cross. That's it, okay? And so when you get into newspaper theology, and you get into all these things, and it makes you, oh, what's God doing? Oh, you, what you're doing is you're saying, Jesus, you're not enough. I need something more. I need something more that tantalizes me, makes me feel better about being a Christian, so what do we do with this? I have two comments. Number one, uncommon experiences. Listen, they do happen. They do happen. My job is not to judge the uncommon experiences that you have. That's one of those great questions pastors get. Pastor, can I tell you about something that happened to me? And they want me to say it never was there, never was a part of it. Stamp, that's of God. Okay? Now there are some things that that I think that you can say that probably aren't of God. But there are those spiritual moments, those, those feelings people have, those experiences that they can't explain. I've had them. I don't know what to do with them. I've shared this story before, but right around the time that Noah was born, I got really sick. My uh, liver was, was starting to fail me. And uh, I got really sick. My uh, fever went well above 106 degrees. I was in the emergency room being uh, put into ice baths, trying to bring it down, convulsing. It was, a, it was an ugly mess, okay? And, and that night, I experienced the most horrific pain in the, in the uh, hospital that I'd ever had. I was in a room by myself, and I kid you not, I am, I'm crying out in pain. It, it hurts so bad. And I remember at, at the peak of the pain... The person sitting next to me in the bed said, I know you're hurting. Let's, let's take something off, off your mind. Let's, let's talk about something else. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about, and I'm telling them stuff in the pain, crying. I'm just dying. And we start having conversations about baseball and conversations about everything. And, and then at some point I went to bed. And I woke up the next morning and there's nobody in the room. And and I asked the nurse, well, where's the guy that was in the room? Young guy, he was about my age. Where, where is he? Man, he, I want to thank him. I, I couldn't have gotten through the night without him. Where is he? She said, what are you talking about? There's no one who's ever in your room. 
Let me tell you something. I don't know what to do with that. I know what I experienced, but let me tell you something. I'm not writing a book about it. Okay? We are not going to, okay, in your membership commitments, and you affirm Tim's vision with the dude in the hospital bed next to him. Uncommon experience. I can tell you in my 38 years, that's never happened before. But can I also say, it never on the kind of drugs I was on, never had the temperature that I had. And so there's a lot of things I need to funnel that uncommon experience through. And I better say, you know what? That guy wasn't Jesus. Okay? It was an uncommon experience. I don't know what to do with it. That's one of those things you put that in your, in your notebook as questions to Jesus when you get to heaven. Okay? I got a question. Who is the dude? Okay? So what do we do with it? Uncommon experiences, listen, should never define you. They should never define you or your faith. Don't let these uncommon experiences, whether you've had them or not, don't let them define you. Don't let them be the basis of your faith. I I can't tell you how many times I've been grieved by hearing someone have an experience and and it's changed their life. I want you to notice something. The Apostle Paul had an amazing uncommon experience. And have you noticed? He doesn't talk about it in the book of Colossians. He doesn't say, hey, you, what you need to do is, is, is go walk the road to Damascus. Go put a vigil there. And you wait. That's where Jesus appeared to me. And so you go, Colossians, what are you doing in Colossae? Get to the road to Damascus because that's where I met Jesus. And how many overpasses with water stains of Jesus or the Mother Mary have we gone and shut down expressways because of mysticism? Because it makes us feel good. The flesh of a tomato that looks like the Lord's Supper. I mean, we can go on and on. There are, there are places in Europe where, where supposedly the Virgin Mother has, has appeared. And millions flock there. Let me tell you something. Those are shadows of the substance of Jesus Christ. And so don't fall prey to that. Don't allow those experiences to define you. Have the discernment to be able to push away experiences that you know are not of God. That you know that that there's no no scriptural way that it can fit into and say, you know what? I'm watching things I shouldn't be. I'm, I'm allowing things into my life that I shouldn't. And that's why these things have happened. It's not because of Jesus and him trying to grow my faith. Notice what the text says. We need to be connected to the head. These people that have these experiences and think we all should, are being puffed up without reason by their sensual mind. And what we need to do is hold fast to Jesus, for whom we, the whole body, are nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, growing with a growth that comes from God. Experiences don't grow you, God does. And so don't go looking for those experiences of others, thinking they're going to grow your faith, that they're going to go to heaven and tell you what heaven's going to be like. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Number three, legalism. Legalism, verses 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism. 
The final weed that Paul wants to pull out is the legalism and asceticism, and that is a faith that's reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. This form of religion, write this down, says vitality is found in the sacrifices that you make. And so throughout church history, we read horror stories of people that got this wrong. They would beat their bodies, trying to bring them into submission, saying, if I beat the body enough, if I whip the body enough, then it will show that I am holy. One church father struggled with the issue of lust. And he thought, well, i got to address that issue of the body. And so he dealt with the nether regions of his body, and he castrated himself, only to learn that lust doesn't begin under the belt, it begins in the heart. Can I tell you how sad that is when we think that external things that we do are going to address the issues that plague us, and only God can provide a way out. So the Colossian church struggled with this. And the Colossian church started forbidding things. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They said marriage was bad. Sexual union between spouses was bad. The idea of creation itself was bad. Don't involve yourself in the, as we talked last week, with the material world. Don't be involved with unbelievers. Stay away from that stuff and, 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 and keep yourself from all of that. Any kind of entrappings of the physical world or the, uh, the, uh, the lives of sinners around. And, and so they began to separate themselves and started to live a life in a, in a bubble, not because of a biblical text, but because of inventions of men. They invented fast, and they'd beat their body in gruesome ways just to show the world how holy they were. Now you say, well, I don't do that. I don't beat my body. I, I, I don't go on these long fasts and all of that. But let me tell you, the Christian life is, is a life that's filled with do's and don'ts, right? We, we feel if, if someone's doing something that, that we don't think is right, we judge them based on it. We, we assume that they're not a spiritually devoted follower of Jesus Christ because they're doing certain things. But understand this, while Christianity has a code of obedience, the life as a Christian is not about do's and don'ts, but done. It's not about do's and don'ts, but about the word done. And so today, sadly, like in the church at Colossae, we define Christianity about what we eat or drink. So we're at, we're at, uh, at uh, Chili's uh, later today, and we're uh, going to go enjoy. We're going to break the Sabbath, by the way, which the ritual people will get mad at you about. And you're going to go, and you see uh, brother so-and-so at the table as you walk by, and oh my goodness, did I see a beer at his table? That guy's drinking beer. I thought he... I thought he was a good Christian. He's drinking beer on a Sunday too. Oh, after church. Oh. And what we do is we do what the Pharisees do. Legalism. Pharisees love legalism. And what they did is they created boundaries around the boundaries that Christ made. Or what the scriptures made. So scripture, let's just talk about alcohol for a moment. Do not be drunk with wine. Doesn't say do not drink wine. Okay. Now, I get that that's an area of, uh, where you can agree to abstain from or disagree, but we can't pass judgment on that one, and we can't create fences that, that the Bible hasn't created. And the Pharisees said, well, we want to make sure no one crosses this fence, so we'll build another fence just to give them a warning sign. And before you know it, there were warnings for warnings for warnings for warnings, and we never remembered what the real warning was all about. 
And so we need to be careful that we do not uh, give um, credibility to one's faith based on what they eat or drink. Let's keep going. How about how we educate our kids? This is, a, this is one that can ruin churches. Well, we're holy because we homeschool, or we're holy because we're out in the world and, and we're letting our kids in, endure uh, the, the persecution, or we're holy because we've got them in a Christian school. We can come up with a whole lot of reasons. But let me tell you something. Your kids are not going to be in heaven, listen to me, because they attended public school, private school, or homeschool. It will be on the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we got to be careful. We don't pass judgment on one another about these things, about what we do on vacations. Oh, you're going to spend $1,000 and go on vacation? I'm going to go on a missions trip. I'm going to do something holy with my time. There's something very unholy about sitting on the beach. Okay? And do you see what happens? Do not touch. Do not do all. Don't go on the beach. That's not good. You could use your time. In so many better ways, you could be reaching orphans and widows in their distress. Is it good to reach orphans and widows? Yes. Does that mean you can't go on vacation? No. Be careful that legalism doesn't crop up in your lives. Uh, Do they have a TV in their house? How do they spend their money? How much service do they do in the church? How do they use their time? All of these things tell us that there's a legalistic heart in every one of us. And we need to be careful that while each of these are questions individually we must ask, listen, we must be very careful not to pass judgment on others for it. And that means that we need to understand that God's at work in some people's lives and God's allowing, and and the scriptures, Paul talks about this over and over again. I don't have time to deal with it, but there's a lot of freedom in Christ. So don't start putting chains around what God has set free in Christ. So a couple things you need to know about this. Sacrifices in life can produce some good. What I am not saying is that discipline is bad. It is good for us to be disciplined. It is good for us to build things that that we abstain from. Okay? And there may be a reason why you abstain from something that someone else doesn't. I have no problem with people drinking. I don't drink myself. Here's why. I don't need any other reasons to joke around more than I do sober. Right? Okay? All right? That's a bad... I have a hard enough guarding my tongue when I'm sober, let alone a couple drinks in me, okay? That may not be your issue, and praise God for it, okay? But I can't judge you, and you can't judge me with regards to that, because it's something that God has left for us in our freedom with Christ to pursue. But the sacrifice is good. If you want to use, listen to me, if you want to use your time on vacation to go and lay on a beach, praise God. If you want to use it to go on a missions trip, praise God. Let's not judge one another with regards to it. Sacrifice is good, but we can't pass judgment. Here's the thing in in our day and age. Sacrifice alone as a means to godliness falls short. It falls short, okay? Our activities apart from Christ, no matter how noble they are, will never get us to God. They will never produce holiness. If you see things as proof as to somehow being better than someone else, you're a legalist, not one who's following Christ in humility. Those sacrifices that you make, listen, will become a noose around your neck. Jesus wants you in a relationship, not in a competition with others. The church is to be a place that worships God, not a place where we show how great we are to one another. 
So Paul has sounded the alarm, legalism, mysticism, and ritualism. He says to keep your eyes open and be aware of it. Well, what are we to do with it? I want to give you very quickly, we're going to close very quickly here, three quick steps. Number one, number one, plant good seed into good soil. We're going to learn next week that our vitality is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. That's where we've got to plant ourselves. Plant yourself not in a thing of activities, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you find yourself veering off of that, you just put yourself back on uh, looking at the cross. Just focus on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So when ritualism comes and you think that ritual's important, look to Jesus When that legalistic bent comes out of you, look to Jesus. When that experience that you want so bad is so important to you, look to Jesus. Plant good seed into the soil. Number two, pull the weeds before it's too late. What area in your life needs pulling? Don't allow them to get tangled up. Don't allow them to sap the needed nutrients for your faith. Get rid of them and get rid of them now. Don't try to explain them away. Don't try to say, well, I'm just trying to keep the church pure. So what questions do you need to ask with regards to ritualism and and, uh, mysticism and legalism? Number one, does your Christianity have a judgmental streak? Do you find yourself evaluating others instead of evaluating yourself? Number two, do you demand that everybody's Christianity look like yours? Number three, do you only care about what you see on the outside to the dismissal of what's happening on the inside? Number four, is your Christianity a joyless set of rules, of things to be done? Take time and evaluate. Ask God to show you the error of your ways. And finally, praise Jesus when the garden grows, when God grows you, when God uses you in amazing ways, when he shows you amazing things, when he allows you to experience amazing experiences, don't boast in yourself. Boast only in the Lord. Blaise Pascal put it this way, Jesus Christ is the center of everything and the object of everything. And he who does not know him knows nothing of the order of the world and nothing of himself. You and I will know nothing about ourselves or the world if Christ is not number one. So true, vital Christianity is not found in the rituals that we are part of, the experiences that we want to experience, or the sacrifices we make, but it is on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that next week. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Lord, I pray that this passage will have challenged us, especially as we come back a second time and go over the same passage again, looking at it through the lens of your finished work on the cross. But Lord, we stop here and we address the problem this morning. And I pray that if there's a a problem in our faith, one of these weeds needs to be pulled. I pray that you you would help us by your strength to rid the garden of our faith from these things. Lord, let us get rid of them so that we may uh, be more nourished by you, that we may find our fulfillment in you, that we might find our our life and our, our identity in who you are and not what we have done. 
Lord, we want to continue to be a unified church. And Lord, these are, these are enemies to unity within your church. And so, Lord, I pray that we would allow love to, to overtake us so that we will not look at one another passing judgment, but recognizing that just like us, that the person sitting next to us is one who needs Jesus just as much as we do and who's depending on Jesus just as much as we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, do spiritual surgery in our lives, that we may be ready to do your work and not just simply a task of things to do so that we can tell people how great we are. Our greatness is found in you and you alone. And we have worshiped you for that this morning. Now lead us by your spirit through this week so that we may honor you, whether we eat or drink, that we would do all things to the glory of your Son in heaven. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done and give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.